Good morning, my name is Ken, one of the pastors here at Village Church. Big welcome to all of our sites, Calgary, Coquitlam, Langley North, Langley South, and Surrey. I've got the privilege this morning of unpacking 23 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So you might want to turn with me there in your Bibles or your phone. In the playing of cards, a trump card is a card that supersedes any card previously played or sequence of cards and results in you winning the hand. It's actually a variation, a 16th century variation of the word triumph. It means you win. And once a trump card is played, all discussion, argument, and scoring is over. You've won. In the Christian life, the trump card is love. Last week, Pastor Mark, he unpacked Paul's answer to a cultural dilemma that the Christians in Corinth were facing. Specifically, the dilemma was this, or the question was this. Is it okay, in light of the Christian freedom that we have, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, it's not about do's and don'ts, in light of that freedom for which Christ died and gave us, would it be okay for me to order a bone-in ribeye, medium rare, off the local menu, knowing that the steak was probably or possibly previously offered to an idol. And if you unpack Paul's initial theological and philosophical answer, with, which Pastor Mark unpacked for us last week, if you just look at the theological and philosophical argument, you'd have to come to the conclusion that, yeah, it's likely okay. There's only one God anyway. It's not the idols. It's our God. And whether you eat a ribeye steak or you prefer veggie burgers, it's not going to get you closer or farther away from God. It's likely okay. And then Paul totally trumps his argument and he pulls out the love card. And it says, unless you love those people. Or however, you can do whatever you want in this case, but if you actually love the people, the new Christians, who don't see it quite the same way as you do, or the old Christians who don't quite see it the same way as you, and if you actually care about their spiritual growth, their relationship with Jesus Christ, if you love them to that level, you actually can't have the ribeye. And then, because my guess is he didn't think they'd actually buy into that, he, he totally shifts his argument and he brings a personal illustration. Chapter 9 is almost a personal, uh, the entire chapter is almost a personal illustration of how he actually lives that out in his own life. And last week's conclusion is this week's our introduction, chapter 8, verse 13. Paul said, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, my brother or sister stumble, I will never again eat meat lest they stumble. And then he goes into a rant. I don't know if you know any pastors or preachers who go on rants, but the Apostle Paul, Paul did, and I've known a couple others that do once in a while. 23 verses, he goes into this rant, so we're going to cover it fairly quickly, but interspersed in the rant, there's four very poignant or sharp declarations of Paul's that expose the depth to which he has taken the invitation and the calling to follow and imitate Jesus Christ. And so I'm hoping you look for those. I'm going to pause and I'm going to give them to you. And, and I think that the reason the Apostle Paul did that for 23 verses, talk about his own life, I think, I believe that he was hoping that his passion and convictions actually rub off on those who hear, including those of us who are hearing it this morning. So chapter 9, am I not free? This is Apostle, Apostle Paul. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The answer that would be yes. 
If, not, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I would be for you, for you're the seal or you're the fruit of my apostleship. You wouldn't even be saved if, I, if God hadn't come work through me coming here. There's a good chance you wouldn't be saved. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to take along a believing wives as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas or Peter himself, the big guy? Or is it only Barnabas and I who can't cease to work for a living? Are we the only guys that got to work for a living? See, Paul wasn't taking a salary. The other guys were, and they actually got to bring along their wives. Um, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. Who plants a vineyard without eating any fruit? No one. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? No one. Do I say these, this is a rant, right? Do I say these things on human authority? Doesn't the Bible or the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, he appeals back to the Old Testament, you shouldn't muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is God really worried about oxen? Is that his issue? Of course he cares about, is that why he included that? Is it for oxen God's concern? Does he not certainly speak this for our sake? It was written for our sake. Paul answers his own question there. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much we reap material things? Probably not. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right. And here's the first declaration. But we endure anything. This is way bigger than meat. This is way bigger than steak. This is way bigger than a glass of wine. This is way better than whether your kids go out on Halloween. This is way bigger than a lot of those things. This is, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes back into his rant. Don't you know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. So I was reading this thinking, you know what, we should probably start paying Pastor Mark. <laughs> of course we pay him. That's the application. Some people have a whole sermon on why we should pay our pastors, but you, you take good care of us, so we appreciate that. But, declaration number two, but I have made no use of any of these rights. Listen, if you're a Christian and you're still bound up on your rights, what you've got coming in your marriage, in your relationship with God, in your boss, in your church, if you're still focused on they should do this, I deserve this, you missed the whole point. If Jesus had been focused on his rights, he never would have come to earth and we never would have made it to heaven. The Christian life's actually not about our rights. Yes, we got rights. But Paul's actually saying, but I've willfully not used any of them. And then he says, back to his rant, nor am I writing these things to secure a salary, for I would rather die than to have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. God's called him to do it. That's something that God had asked him to do. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, for if I do it on my own will, I've got a reward. So if I sacrifice my rights and actually do what God's asked me to do because I want to and I love him, I get a reward. But if I do it out of, or, but if I don't do it, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. So, so just, if God's given you something to do, which he has, and we choose not to do it, that doesn't mean we're not responsible for it. We're still a steward of it and we'll still answer to God one day. For if I do this in my own will, I have a reward, but if not in my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so not to make full use of, right of, my, of my rights in the gospel. And then uh, declaration number three, they're kind of escalating. For though I am free from everybody, I am free, I get it. I have made myself a I have made myself a I, God didn't, I chose to surrender and make myself a servant of all. 
that I might win more of them. Then he goes on again. To the Jews that became like a Jew, to win the Jews. Under the law, I became one of those under the law, though I'm not under the law, so I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Declaration number four. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. And that's the summary. That by all, I might save some. That, in a nutshell, that is what caused Paul to actually live a celibate life, give, give up some of the privilege. That's what caused him to give up his salary. That's what caused him to eat veggie burgers. That's what caused him to still earn a living and, not, and, and, and work late, uh, early mornings and late nights. That was, that's what caused him to drop to his knees. That's what caused him to give up professional ambition. That's what caused him to be willing to have people mock him, make fun of him. and all. That's what caused, so that he might save some. You know what I was thinking about? What I wrestled with most this week is why. What happened in Paul's life that caused him to love people so much that he'd be willing to give all that up? And how would I get to that point? Because I think most of us, if we're Christians, we actually think we should probably love people more. But if, for Paul, he did it. I know, I know he had a big conversion experience, but so do I. I mean, but Paul had everything. He had prestige. He had money. He was smart. He might have been good looking. We don't know those things, but he had everything going for him. And yet he chose. This is what Paul wanted to do. He, he knew that salvation was by grace through faith. So this was not on his checklist. He didn't feel he had to do it to go to heaven. This is something he actually wanted to do. My question is why? How do we come to love God, and how do we come to love other people, particularly those who don't know Jesus Christ? How do we come to love them that much that we would also be willing to sacrifice a bit of rights and freedoms? So I read chapter 9 about 22 times in 11 different translations, and I tried to read in between the lines and look at Paul's other writings, and I came up with three, maybe four reasons that caused Paul to love so deeply. First one is, Paul clearly understood that this life is not the main event. I know we, we know that, we say that, but I'm not sure a lot of us fully embrace that. I, I know that I forget that sometimes. In another passage of Philippians, Paul, Paul wrote, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for, labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul wasn't considering suicide. He was in a jail cell, and he knew that if he ticked off the guards, he could get executed. He actually wanted to die. He actually preferred to die than to live. You know, I have met people who actually look forward to heaven, but usually they're on their deathbed, and the pain of living in this earth is so great, they're actually looking forward to that. Rarely have I seen it in someone who's healthy. One exception was a pastor. His name was Peter, and his son died in a, in a drowning accident a diving drowning accident. And after the smoke cleared, the funeral was over and some of, the, some of the grieving, I'm not sure you ever stopped grieving that. He said to me, we're having breakfast, and he said, I can tell you one thing, I see heaven very differently. And there was a little glitter in his eyes, I'm actually looking forward to dying because he'd see his son again. And Paul seemed to have that. He actually would prefer, which would you prefer? See, see here's the challenge. I'd actually, I know I'm supposed to prefer dying, but I kind of like this life. It's a challenge. 
Then the other things, Paul had some incredible spiritual experiences. And one time in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we probably won't get there, but the Lord will come back before that. But, um, but he actually said at one time he was having one of his prayer times and he was so close with the Lord, says he was caught up in the third heaven, whether I was in the body, he didn't actually know if he was having an out-of-body experience or not. And, and they don't always happen to me, but I have had some of those. Hopefully you've had some when you're praying. And if you're praying for maybe 20 minutes and you're really deep with God and you kind of, when you're done praying, you kind of wake up. It's, it's like Paul had some very, very deep, intimate experiences. And then, of course, he, he thought about his reward and all that kind of... But I think there was another side, which brings me to the second reason why I think Paul was willing to love that deeply. It's because Paul had a clear and very sobering understanding of hell. He, he said in chapter 9, verse 22, he says, I'll do all things, I'll, give up, I'll become all things to all men so that I might save some. Save from what? You might be a skeptic and we're so glad you're here. Paul, if Paul was preaching instead of me, he'd actually look at you and think, I need to save that person. What do we need to be saved from? Saved from hell. Back in, back in the day, preachers used to try and scare people into becoming Christians. And we used to do that at summer camp too. You know, you'd have the week of summer camp and then on Friday night, you'd stoke up the fire and things like that. And the guy would speak and all these kids would be there, eight or nine years old, say, would you like Jesus to be your forever friend and live forever within heaven? Or would you like to go to hell? Oh, I'll pick that one out, I'm there. And so we'd kind of frighten people into the kingdom and we would do that hellfire and brimstone sermons and we tried to frighten people um, into, into the kingdom. And we've kind of shift. And we've kind of swung the pendulum, and I'm part of that too, where we talk a little more about salvation in this life, to be set free, made whole, and delivered. That's even a message that, you know, that we really preach heavily in, in some of our ministries here because we want people to have whole lives here and meaningful lives here. And salvation's not just for when you, go, when you die, but it's also for here. But in our pendulum swinging, it is possible and most likely that we have lost a bit of the reality of something that a lot of us truly believe. And, and just because we've swung the pendulum does not minimize the reality of hell, which is a place of eternal separation from God and people that we love and all things good. And it's an eternal destiny for all who have fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes me and that includes you. Which is why the gospel is so important and why it's important for us to explain and re-explain it and refresh our memories. Here's the gospel. If I summarize it, here's the gospel in a nutshell. We screwed up. We've messed up. We've fallen short. We've hurt other people. We've hurt God. We've sinned and we deserve hell. And and, you know, just like when you sin against other people, you know there's a consequence, right? You feel the consequence. Well, God said, if you choose to do life your own way, the result from that will be death. And God is moral, he's fair, and he's just. And so a payment has to be made for that transgression or the the, the debt. The good news is that God's also love. And he knew this, and so he devised a plan with his son, and his son Jesus would come to earth. That's why we celebrated Good Friday. Jesus would come to earth as a human being, live a perfect life, and he would actually become the payment. He would actually allow his body to be torn apart so that mine wouldn't have to be. He would actually bleed out from his veins real blood so that my blood would not have to be shed. But the challenge is, the the, the payment, not the challenge, the good news is Jesus Christ has already paid the price for every single one of my sins, including the ones I'm going to commit next Thursday. Thursday. 
and you too, but, but the, the, the payment is only credited to my account. What Jesus paid for is only credited to my account if I humble myself, if I ask him forgiveness, and if I turn my life over to him as Savior and Lord. It's a package deal. Jesus, you died for me. I believe that I need that. I need forgiveness. Therefore, I'm going to give my life to you. That's the good news. It's amazing. It's free. It's amazing. Yes, we, we give our life over, but we're already, we deserve death. I preached a sermon once in my early ministry. I called it Beats Hell. And I talked about all the things we complain about, and I said, beats hell. If we want what we deserve, we deserve hell. Anything above that is bonus. The bad news is, for people who live in defiance of God, who either don't believe in God or don't think God's serious, the bad news is that the payment still needs to be made. And if you don't accept Jesus' payment, that's the only person willing to die for you. I'm not. Pastor Mark isn't. No one else is. And even if they were, they're not perfect, so it wouldn't even work. If you reject that, the payment still has to be made, and it's going to be your life. And that's the place called hell, which God created, actually originally for Satan and his demons, but also will allow people who don't want a relationship with him to spend eternity there. And that includes the people that I know and love who don't know Jesus. That includes the people I go to the gym with, includes people... I was going to say I work with, but they're mostly saved. <laughs> the people I drive by that are mowing their lawns this morning. That includes some relatives that I know. That includes the relatives Paul knew and the people he sowed tents with. He writes in 2 Thessalonians, For those who don't know God or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord people debate nowadays, is hell a physical place of torment and burning lake of fire, or is it emotional? And you can debate it either way, but either way it's going to be terrible. I personally believe that there's a literal hell. And I had one experience early in my life, when I, in my early 20s, that gave me a very, very, very small taste, and it still stays with me. I've never told this story to anyone but my wife. In my early 20s, I was fixing some boats in northern Saskatchewan at a, at a drive-in fishing camp, and it was on the Besnard Lake Road, which is an iconic road, but anyway, it doesn't really matter. It's really a bumpy road, tough place to get there. And I'd been there for about a week, and I was about to come back the next day, but there was a thunderstorm, and it started a forest fire. It actually became a very big fire in that, that year of northern Saskatchewan. And I wanted to get home. I was young, married, and all that, so I wanted to get home, and I'd been there for a week, and so I was warned not to go, but I thought, I'll make it. You know, you're invincible, you're young. How bad can it be? And so I started driving back home, and I drove into the smoke, and eventually I drove into the fire. I had acetylene torches in the, in the van. Uh, I had propane tanks. I had gas. I don't know what I was thinking with that. I, I had gas, and I drove into that, and the smoke got thicker, and the, the flames started, I started to see the flames encroaching upon the road, and eventually they were in the ditch, and at one point there was about a 30-foot wall, and I'm not exaggerating, a 30-foot wall of trees on either side of me burning, and I was afraid. I could feel it. I could smell it. I was afraid, and I thought I was going to perish. I couldn't turn around. I didn't know what to do, so I just kept driving. And then finally, I saw a little light on the back of a helicopter. And I don't know if someone had told him, some idiot had driven through anyway, but the helicopter came to find me and kind of made enough of a, a wind so I could see the road, and he, he led me through. And that memory has never left me. It frightens me. The other memory, that, or the other picture that I have, which I don't like to think about, is actually that, that moment of dread and horror and fear 
that those who have decided there is no God or have chosen to live on their own and pay their own way will feel the moment they die and stand before God and realize I was wrong. There is a God and I chose the wrong way. Uh, Penn and Teller, the uh, magicians who pair, uh, uh, Penn, uh, Penn and Julian, I think is his last name, I can't remember exactly, uh, Gillette, sorry, is his last name. He's an atheist, he's a proclaimed atheist, and he was being interviewed at one point, and he was being talked, they were talking about Christianity, and this is what he said, there's another thing that hasn't forgotten, I've, I've not forgotten. He said, I don't believe that the Bible is true, but I can tell you this, if I did believe the Bible is true, I would be telling everybody, because the implications of heaven and hell, if it's true, are staggering. And that, to me, might be worth sacrificing a few nights of freedom and a few rights. That, to me, if it's true, and I'm not trying to frighten anyone, but on the other hand, if this is true, and I believe it is, we should be frightened. Being afraid of an eternal destiny apart from God, knowing it could have been different, is something we should fear. If you're a skeptic this morning, or if you've kind of forgotten your faith, or you've kind of walked away from God, not messing with your eternal destiny, that's between God and you. It's really between God and God. But this should cause us fear. But it should also cause people who are Christians, I'm, I believe I'm going to heaven, I'm not too worried about the hell part for me, but it should cause and move people like me to sacrifice a few more hours and give up some of because Because shouldn't I? I mean, I serve, I serve not only 50 hours a week at Village. I also, you don't know, on the weekends, I serve for Freedom Session International for free. We do other things. We've got kids. We've got a wife. I've got three motorcycles, two of which are not running right now. Shouldn't I be able to work on those? Shouldn't I be able to? And, I, and I'm not trying to set myself up like the Apostle Paul, but I get it. Do I really have to be fanatical? I mean, I give to the offering. I give to this. I give. Shouldn't I be able to just? Yes, but not if I love. If I love, and this is true, that will cause me to pray, that will cause me to build relationships, that will cause me to give up a few things. The third reason that I think Paul loved or he changed his life so much is because he understood the difference between marketplace and mission. He understood the difference between mission and marketplace. He says in 9 verse 6, is it only Barnabas and I that, that, have, that have no right to stop working for a living? He understood that was his marketplace. Paul made tents. He was probably good at it. <laughs> he probably found fulfillment in it. Tent making was a big deal in those days. It's kind of like construction today. It was a big deal. It was an important thing. He was probably good at it. He found fulfillment in it. He probably made a good chunk of change in it. He had freedom. No one could tell him what to do. No one would vote on, on, on how the tent is. He had all that kind of stuff. He didn't have to whine, listen to people whining about what color the tent should be. He just made the tents. Buy them or don't buy them. Get out of my face. That's his marketplace. Your marketplace is what you do. It's how you earn your living. It's, how you, it's your career. It's what you do. It's your contributions to society. If that means you're, you're a mom, stay at home, that's your, that's your marketplace right now. If you're a student, that's your marketplace. If you've got a job, you're providing for you, that's your marketplace. And it's important and you should be good at it and should bring a, a season of fulfillment to you. And that's good if you've got a job that's got a fulfillment, but that's not your mission. And you will not be judged. And, and, and if God led you into that career, great. Why did he do it? 
Your mission, on the other hand, and every single one of us have this, your mission is centered around the purposes for which God created, created you, the spiritual gifts and abilities that he deposited in you, the internal motivation God's already put in you for it's God who wills and, uh, works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose, and God's bucket list of good works that he's already planned for you to do. He's already planned for you to do them. The Apostle Paul said, if I don't preach, I'm woe is me, I'm in trouble because I'm still responsible for them. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for two days or 32 years, God actually has a mission, it's good work, specific things, specific activities he wants you to get involved in, and no one can protect you from standing before him one day and giving an account for that. It would be unloving to not share that with you. In 1997, I had the privilege and the burden to officiate at the funeral of a young man named David, David Sinclair. He was 21 years old. He had just finished a two-year Associate of Arts degree at Briarcrest Bible College, and um, he actually gave up his third year of Bible college to help us with a church plant we were doing in the, in the heart of the city for unchurched young adults. But he wanted to go on this Mexico missions trip first. We said, sure, we weren't paying him, so we really had no choice. So he said, yeah, go ahead, and plus it's a good idea. He went on the Mexico missions trip in 1997, and if you remember, that's when they had the big volcano there and brought back some ash for everybody. And he went on the missions trip, and he came back, and he was here two days, and he and a friend went out to Cultus Lake, which is a lake about an hour away from here. And he went out to Cultus Lake, and he was killed there in a jet ski accident. And because I was doing the funeral, his family lent me his journal that he had been writing in Mexico. And two days before he left Mexico, which was within a week of the day that he died, he wrote a paraphrase of, the verse of one of Paul's scriptures that I read earlier, and he wrote this. For me to live is blank and to die is gain. If the blank is not Christ, to die would not be gain. For me to live is fill in the blank. What is it? To die is gain. If the blank is not Christ, if the purpose for which I'm living is not Christ, to die would not be gain. What does that say about me? Because I said, because I kind of prefer to live here. It means that I have leaked out. I have leaked out my first love sometimes, and sometimes I am living for ministry or for my family or for, for whatever it is or for, for my hobbies or whatever. Paul didn't put for me to live as tents. For me to live as tent making, he didn't put for me to live as ministry. He didn't put for me to live as my ambition. He didn't live, put it for me to live as my RSP or my vocations or my golf or whatever. He wrote, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. What would you put in the line? I hope you're in community groups this week because in community groups, you're going, to be, you're going to have an opportunity to fill in that blank and talk about that. I'm also going to give you seven politically correct reasons, the top seven reasons why people live today. My question to you right now is why do you get up in the morning? Why is it? Why do you do what you do? For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. The difference between, you know, actually Paul's more like you uh, in some ways than I am because Paul made his living in the marketplace just like you do. But what he did is he leveraged all that for the sake of what he lived for, Jesus Christ and the gospel. He wasn't against vacation. God's not against vacation and all that kind of stuff. But even our jobs, even all that, he just leveraged for the kingdom. The difference between Paul and some of us is that some of us haven't taken the time to discover our mission. Some of us once knew what our mission was, but we got distracted with our tents and all the other things we live for. And some of us knew what our mission was, and we made mistakes, and we think God's done with us. No, he's not. John Erpberg once says, if you're, not done, if you're not dead, you're not done. God's still got a plan. 
You know, one of the benefits of being part of a, church, a family like Village Church is we can actually help you find your mission. You know, in, in a small way, there's, you know, the This Is Village Church course number four, we, we go through a little bit of a spiritual test and inventory thing. That just gives you a rough idea where you should start serving. But let me give you the backstory. You know why we do the, the, the You Make It Happen week, weeks and things like that and push and invite you to be part of this mission? It, it's actually not just to fill spots. It's actually to give you an opportunity to do something eternal and find out what your mission is. But you've got to reinterpret it. Listen, for those of you who are serving in children's ministry, you're not handing out fishy crackers. You're not just telling a story. Think about what you're really doing for the mission. You're actually giving children the best hour of the week, hopefully, so that their, their parents, some of who are not following Jesus, can sit in, in big people church and listen to the sermon and perhaps change and reorient their lives around Jesus Christ. You could be saving families. For those of you who are in youth ministry, you're not just teaching a Bible study or going on a camp out. Youth today are looking for a model. They're looking for a Christian young adult or a Christian old adult, whatever. They're looking for a Christian who actually is authentic but actually is serving Jesus and they're trying to find someone to follow who, who sees that it's worth following Jesus. If you're giving to the campaign, you know, some of you think your spiritual gift is making money. Bonus, excellent, because we need a whole pile of it in our 2021 campaign. You know, if you've got enough, why not work a couple extra years and give the whole money to the building? Because we're not just building a building, we're building a leadership training center where we can hopefully develop more pastors and lay people to go out and plant more churches like this so that more people go to heaven and not go to hell. We can go, I can go on and on and on. In Calgary, there's this, there's this couple of people, I actually forgot their names, but I knew that they lead Alpha in their home. In Calgary Village Church, I, I know that they're actually, and he's got a really good job. I actually texted, their names are James and Beth. I, I texted Nathan, so I know what your names are, James and Beth, bonus on you. But, but I know you've got a good job, it's fulfilling, but you lead Alpha in your home. I'm not asking you to lead Alpha in your home. That's what God's called them to do. They care, that's the way they do it. We actually can help you find a place and be part of a mission, not just sitting around, not just giving a couple bucks. But the other thing we're giving you is an opportunity for something for you to point back to when you stand before God and are asked to give a stewardship of, of the gifts and abilities he's given you. This is what I did for the gospel. You have a contribution. I need to bring the message to a close here. And I want to bring it with a heartfelt conviction and a caution. With all the ways to serve God and all the different ways to find mission, and I'm speaking to those of you who are Christians, let's make sure that we don't overlook our personal responsibility to interact with and eventually share our faith, our God story, our reason for the hope that's within us to the people that God has put around us in our lives in the hopes that they might one day be saved. And you might say, that's not my gift, it's not my responsibility. Well, you might be right about the gift, but it is our responsibility. And my hope this morning in the message is that that would move us to pray a little bit more, to actually build a friendship rather than just an acquaintanceship with some people in our lives. If you're in community groups this week, you're also gonna hear about a missing component that Pastor Jordan and I were talking about from Langley North, which I think is in some of our lives, and that's why the concept of sharing our faith is so awkward and weird to us, because I think there's a missing component, and we're gonna share that with you, and hopefully you can develop that in your life so that it actually becomes a natural part of your Christian experience. Last reason, and I, I remember I asked the question earlier, what was it that caused Paul to love people so much that he was willing to sacrifice all these things? I don't think he loved people that much. He loved Jesus that much. Have I not seen the Lord? Have I not personally seen Jesus? 
You know, I used to travel, I don't travel too much, but I used to travel in both conservative and charismatic camps, and we've all got our own definition of what it means to follow Jesus and, and be spirit-filled. But here's a conviction I've come to. You cannot follow Jesus intimately. You can't be close to Jesus. You can't know him deeply personally and be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and not let his love for lost people, for people who don't know Jesus personally, and not let that love for people who need to be saved begin to affect your heart and change your emotions and some of what we do, our time and our money. You can't do that. You can't be close to me and not care about my wife. I can have a relationship, but we can't be close. If you, if you don't like my wife, just don't care less, it's not going to be a close, intimate relationship. We're not going to spend a lot of time together. An even stronger illustration is if you're a guy and you were going to marry a woman with children who already had children from a previous marriage, um, and if, if you married her, you couldn't love her and get to know her intimately and not care about her children. Paul didn't love people that much. He loved Jesus that much. He spent time with them. There's a number of ways to gauge spiritual maturity, but one has to be, am I willing? And some of us aren't. So what you do is you ask Jesus to give you that love. God asks you to give me that love. We draw close to him and ask Jesus to begin changing our hearts. We're going to, once a month at Village, we, we typically, we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, or, and we remember what Jesus did for us on Good Friday. And so that's going to happen again today. It's communion, and this is for people who are Christians, and we're actually remembering what Jesus did for us. But I've got twofold application here. And so, so what's going to happen, they're going to be passing a little bowl of juice and a little gluten-free bread, and we ask you to simply take it and dip it in. If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus personally, dip it into the juice and wait, and when you're ready, during the worship time, you can partake. But if you're a skeptic, if you don't know Jesus personally, forget about the communion. I want you to think about what it means. I want you to think about that piece of bread. Jesus actually allowed his body to be torn apart so yours didn't have to. And the, the, the juice represents the blood that he bled out to pay the price for your sins. This could be the day or this could be the week that you decide, you know what? I want Jesus to pay for my sins. I don't want to spend a hopeless eternity apart from him. And how you would do that is say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I ask you to forgive me. I can't make these things right. I ask you to forgive me. Apply that to my account. I want to be a Christian. I want to go to heaven. Show me how to do that. Show me how to live. And if you're a Christian, before you take communion today, I want you to look at that same bread and blood and think about your loved one who doesn't know Jesus or your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus or your colleague at work who doesn't know Jesus and ask God to put his love in your heart for the one or two people that he has strategically placed around you. Just ask him to put his love in your heart that your heart begins to actually be concerned. Start there. Draw closer to Jesus. And we'll help you find different ways to invite them to church, invite them to other things, but start there. Communion is not just for those of us who know Jesus. It's for all people, including the ones that he wants us to become all things to so that by all possible means we might save some them. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for what you did for us. And sometimes we forget it. Sometimes we forget that there's a heaven and hell and afterlife, and we're sorry. And I ask you, Lord, that you 
pour out your love to all people listening to my voice, those that don't know you and those that do know you. For those that are ready to cross the line today and invite you to be Jesus' Savior and Lord, hear their prayer, fill their heart with your spirit, with your love. For those of us who know you, fill our hearts with your love and compassion for us, but also for those whom you wanted us to become all things so that we might be part of their salvation. 